Because everyone has to eat, and all people make conscious choices about what they eat, it's probably the activity that reveals most about an individual or even a group of people. Uh, that person's values and fears, ambitions, and even where that person fits in a society. Tell me what you eat, and I will tell you what you are. The simple act of eating contains a multitude of fascinating stories. Eating is, quite literally, an indispensable human activity. And as a result, whether we realize it or not, the need to obtain food has been a major driver across all history. Now, in Food, a cultural culinary history, this fascinating 36-episode podcast brought to you by The Great Courses Plus and hosted by one of the world's foremost experts on food history, you'll learn how the entirety of human civilization, war, trade, politics, art, religion, and much more, has been shaped by its interaction with food. Hi, I'm Jason Smeagle, and like you, I'm a lifelong learner. I've been listening to The Great Courses for over 14 years, and I'm excited to be sharing this great course as a podcast with you. In this podcast, we're going to travel the world discovering fascinating food lore and culture of all regions and eras, from the cuisine of ancient Egypt to the great flowering of European cookery in the Middle Ages, and from the celebrity chefs of 18th century France to our own Zagat and Michelin-rated restaurant culture of today. Along the way, we'll hear about historical recipes, food preparation techniques from around the world, and even activities you can try at home. This podcast is hosted by Ken Albala, who is professor of history and chair of food studies at the University of the Pacific. Ken is a brilliant chef in his own right, as well as an award-winning and prolific author who has written or edited more than two dozen books on the history of food. He's also the author of Ken Albala's Food Rant, a highly popular blog for people who love food. If you're interested in trying any of Ken's recipes and food experiments, or want links to the suggested readings that Ken has prepared for each episode, you can find supporting materials for this podcast at thegreatcoursesdaily.com. Sound good? Let's begin. In this first episode, hunting, gathering, and Stone Age cooking, we're going to consider food as a catalyst in human history and what our food choices reveal about our values and ambitions. Then we'll look at food culture in prehistoric times, our ancestors' wide-ranging diet of everything from mammoths and seafood to acorns, insects, seeds, and grasses, and the ways in which how they ate directly drove evolution. Imagine you are in a crowded restaurant, bustling with customers, waiters scurrying back and forth, cooks carefully flipping saute pans in the kitchen. It's a familiar scenario, yet the entire event being played out is the product of specific historical forces. The tomatoes that are in that salad made a circuitous historical journey from South America to Mexico to Europe and then back to North America. The pepper came all the way from India. In fact, every ingredient on the plate has its own unique story to tell. 
so too do the recipes, and the way these foods are put together is no accident. Our flavor preferences shift dramatically over time due to specific historical, social, religious, and even political reasons. 500 years ago, we would have found sugar and cinnamon liberally sprinkled on every dish, and the order of the meal has changed drastically as well. Even the cooking technology, something we take for granted, like the gas to heat the stoves, the stainless steel pots, the electric lighting in the kitchen, would all have been unthinkable just a few generations in the past. Even the way the kitchen staff is organized, who actually does the cooking, is also a fairly recent phenomenon. Consider, too, the manners that govern the dining table, the way we hold our fork and knife. The rituals of eating develop in very different ways around the world for a variety of fascinating reasons. That is to say, the simple act of eating out contains a multitude of stories, not only what we eat and the way it's cooked, but our ideas about food, and even, I would argue, our sense of what tastes good has changed over time. As the object of historical inquiry, as a window into the past, the advantage of studying food is its ubiquity. After all, everyone eats. In fact, it's the only activity that every single person must do. And, and they think about it every single day. Breathing is involuntary, reproduction is optional, but everyone has to eat. In fact, though we rarely consider it so, food is even a major catalyst in human history. Something as simple as a sweet potato spurred population growth in early modern China. The quest for spices led directly to the accidental European discovery of the New World. Even modern warfare was made possible by advances in food technology, from Napoleon's army marching on its stomach to the soldiers' rations in World War I and II. And of course, Many of the mass migrations through history were prompted by the quest for food, from prehistoric times all the way to the Irish potato famine. Moreover, because everyone has to eat, and all people make conscious choices about what they eat, it's probably the activity that reveals most about an individual or even a group of people. Uh, that person's values and fears, ambitions, and even where that person fits in a society. Tell me what you eat, and I will tell you what you are. This oft-heard quip comes from a 19th century book about taste by Jean-Antoine Briat-Savarin, and he was saying something extraordinarily profound about the role of food in human culture. Note, this is not the same as you are what you eat, which implies that physically you become like your food, and that's certainly true, but there's more to it. The original phrase also suggests that people use food to express who they are, consciously or otherwise. That somehow food choice is a kind of message. It's a means of communication, as much as the way we speak or the clothes we wear. Food is also, therefore, a means of communication. I mean, imagine a diner invited to a great medieval banquet hall. He's seated physically below the host, emphasizing the guest's inferiority and dependence. And the food that comes out is abundant and lavish, even exotic. Again, communicating the host's wealth and largesse. And the liberal seasoning of spices very clearly says to everyone present, here is a person of sophistication, knowledge, and power, because these simple flavorings traveled halfway around the globe, passed through the hands of many middlemen, and now they're worth their weight in gold. And we are about to squander them on our stomachs. Now consider how very different that message is from, say, 
a romantic dinner for two, or a cozy family meal, or a burger at a tailgate party. In all cases, our food communicates our values, our anxieties, and our aspirations. For example, when King George VI of England and his wife Elizabeth came to visit President Roosevelt and Eleanor at Hyde Park in 1939, they might have been expecting a formal state dinner, but Mrs. Nesbitt, the Roosevelt housekeeper, served hot dogs outside at a picnic. Now, it might seem completely inept, and by all accounts, Mrs. Nesbitt was a terrible cook, but I think it was also, even if not consciously, a way to communicate that we Americans are not stuffy and formal, and we can appreciate good, common food. And here's what we have to offer. Sometimes food choices were, and still are, further elaborated into formal codes. Think about keeping kosher for observant Jews. It's a daily reminder of one's relationship to God. Or being a vegetarian encompasses an entire ethical code about how we should treat animals. Sticking to your weight loss diet tells people uh, what you and much of the broader culture values, of course, being thin. And these, I would say, are more than simple just ways of eating. They are food ideologies that express values that go way beyond what's on the plate. They encompass an entire worldview. And obviously everyone has to eat to survive, but the fact that humans consciously choose some foods and reject others, uh, they transform foods in certain ways and even communicate using food, it means that looking at the past and its food ways is an excellent way to analyze culture in general and to understand where we ourselves have come from. I also believe it's equally important to taste food from the past, to gain a direct aesthetic appreciation for what our forebears enjoyed. So throughout the course, I'll be discussing recipes, I'll be offering directions on things like how bread was baked, how ancient salads were constructed, how sushi is rolled. That is what we will be doing throughout this course, looking at what people ate and why, how they made the best of their material resources, the technologies they used to transform food, and most importantly, the ideas they had about food. And when we're done, your relationship to the food you eat and to human history as a whole may be quite different, and I hope far richer. So let's begin at the very beginning, uh, even before human history, with a discussion of food in prehistoric times. Looking at the diet of prehistoric people raises fundamental questions about what we were meant to eat according to nature. Now, this is a question that most civilizations at one point or another address. Are we primarily sharp-toothed carnivores or are we benign vegetarians? Well, the answer may surprise you. It's long been assumed that our prehistoric forebearers were primarily hunters. You know, judging from archaeological remains of animal bones and arrow tips and, of course, pictures of game depicted on cave walls like you find in Lascaux in the south of France and Altamira in Spain. But from the emergence of Homo sapiens about 200,000 years ago, right down to only about 10,000 years ago, the vast majority of our time on this planet, humans got their food by gathering and hunting. And notice, I've switched those two terms. Normally, you see them as hunting and gathering. And that's because re recent studies of human DNA and archaeological remains suggest that gathering was equally, if not even more important than hunting. That is, leafy vegetables, 
tubers, and fruits that make up a significant proportion of the diet, as evidenced by absence of vitamin deficiencies and general good health. And the conclusion is that humans have always been omnivores, and we still are. And it's only recently that archaeologists have been able to recognize vitamin deficiencies like scurvy or rickets from examining human bones. And even more recently, that geneticists have been able to trace back human genes thousands of years and extrapolate information about the human diet. There are much more sophisticated methods of analyzing tissue remains and fossilized bits of food even are now giving us a more complete image of this prehistoric diet. And the surprise is prehistoric humans were well-fed. They ate everything and anything that offered nutritional value. So yes, there was the meat of animals, both large and far more often small ones, but also insects, fish, wild greens, nuts, berries, seeds. They literally ate everything. Other evidence is provided by plants and animal remains left at archaeological sites. And we're talking about little bits of bones, heaps of shells, traces of bug exoskeletons. And when you find a huge pile of bones of a particular species that are maybe burned or broken and discarded into a heap, it's pretty good evidence that it was a regular part of the diet and that hunters would have brought back their kill to a central place, butchered it there, probably shared it communally. And it's usually small animals like dogs or rabbits sometimes clamshell middens. I mean, those are the ones that are found most often. And the question is, why? Why not larger species? Larger game couldn't be carried, remember. Uh, it had to be cut up where it was killed. The bones are usually left behind and the meat dispersed. So things like mammoth or bison or a sea lion. And on the other hand, tiny grubs and most plants com usually completely disappear. And obviously, large mammal bones, they survive at a much greater rate. So we may get a false impression that most prehistoric peoples ate a lot of meat. And again, they were omnivores, okay? Our mouths, our digestive systems, we can digest nearly anything. Not grass, of course, but most vegetables and meats. Now, the wall paintings, like those in Lascaux and Altamiris, they do reveal what kind of species were hunted, some of which are now interestingly extinct. I mean, woolly mammoth, the aurochs, the ancient wild ancestor of the cow that survived right up until the 16th century. Or sometimes species that no longer live in a region because they were overhunted, or the climate changed so dramatically that they couldn't survive or feed themselves. And that's the case with the uh, ibex in Europe. Now, anthropologists also infer information about prehistoric diets and cooking methods by comparing modern-day peoples that still live in traditional ways, what few remain. Uh, and then they draw inferences about prehistoric peoples from them. For example, anthropologists have studied extensively the Inuit and Aleuts, the Amazonian tribes like the Yanomami, Africans like the Mbuti and, uh, or Aboriginal Australians or New Guinea Highlanders, precisely because these are the very last hunter-gathering people on Earth, and their lifestyles may suggest what our own prehistoric ancestors did too. For example, cooking rings, earth ovens, grinding stones that are still used today or up until very recently may explain how food was processed thousands of years ago. 
Fishing weirs that are used by ancient Native Americans may explain how fish became part of the diet before we find you know, evidence of hooks and lines and things like that. And actually, a weir is really an ingenious device. It's wooden poles, sometimes stones, are arranged along a riverbed, which sort of catch the fish and divert them in one direction and then lead them into a pool so they can't basically get out. And then you go up to them and you spear them. Uh, and the remains of those survive and in fact were still used in some places right up to the 19th century. There have been a lot of recent discoveries in paleontology also regarding human evolution. So let me give you a little sense of when and how humans appeared and what we know about the diet of hominids. Well, the story of how we became human is actually all about food, um, hunting, processing ingredients, eventually cooking. So the story of human evolution is a story of changes triggered basically by different modes of food production. So the last common ancestor of humans and apes uh, lived about somewhere between five and 10 million years ago. Um, both were omnivores, but a parting of ways in the quest for food, in a sense, made us what we are. Ardipithecus ramidus, just discovered in 1994, is the oldest hominid who lived about five million years ago. And he was about four feet tall, walked upright, lived in forests. Um, and bipedalism, the very fact that hominids walk on two feet, is thought to be the result of the need to move faster and see farther when hominids began to move onto the plains and catch larger animals or even just to escape from predators. In other words, how we ate on the plains now directly drove evolution. And the shorter hominids that walked with their knuckles on the ground, they couldn't compete and so they died off. And meanwhile, of course, the apes stayed in the forest. So the first cultural changes related to food appeared about two and a half to one and a half million years ago. This is with a man called Homo habilis. It means handyman, okay? And the reason for that is he's found with tools around him, such as flaked stones for cutting. And, and the, the idea is that he had a bigger brain. Uh, there's a bigger Broca's area of the brain, so he probably could speak a bit too. Now, why is that important for food? Well, it's cooperation in hunting. Uh, working together with other people in social groups. And Homo habilis probably made the transition from a diet comprised primarily of unprocessed plant foods to a greater amount of meat. And that's in the Pleistocene era, about 1.5 million years ago. Meat was acquired just as often, I should mention, by scavenging uh, as by hunting. You find marks on bones in the Olduvai Gorge that show First carnivore bites, and then followed by cuts made with a tool. So it looks like they went and found a dead animal and cut it up. But our story gets very interesting with Homo erectus, who lived about 1.8 million to 300,000 years ago. And this uh, hominid was found outside Africa. So Peking man, uh, relatives in Europe, and, and they're probably actually better walkers than we are. Our pelvises are much wider to allow birth of infants that have big heads and large brains. But about 700,000 years ago, there is direct evidence of hunting. And they, uh, for example, hunted giant baboons in the Olor Gasali site in East Africa. Now, why does this kind of evidence for hunting also imply a higher level of organization? Well, first, one person can kill a baboon, but what can he do with it? You know, eat it all maybe, you know, it goes bad. So it really has to be distributed. Staying in bands assures that also, you'll have food that's killed by others. So it's cooperation and sharing. 
Most importantly, Homo erectus used fire. And it's not certain, maybe he collected it rather than starting fires, but this is certainly our Prometheus. If you're enjoying this podcast and want more of the same, you can find hundreds of audio courses on all sorts of topics, all taught by brilliant professors like Ken Albala at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash podcasts, the new audio and video streaming site from The Great Courses, the leader in lifelong learning, featuring in-depth courses on subjects ranging from history, science, Tai Chi, anthropology, Spanish, guitar, and a whole lot more. At The Great Courses Plus, you can learn everything about anything. Recently, Richard Rangham has made the argument that Homo erectus also cooked food. And this made available many more nutrients, which allowed us to spend less energy digesting raw food, more energy developing greater brain capacity. And therefore, he suggests we evolved because we cooked food. Now, there isn't much archaeological evidence of cooking that goes back that far, but as, as he suggests, it is still plausible. The oldest evidence from vegetable remains uh, is a Homo erectus site in China, about 400,000 years old, in which the seeds seem to have been roasted. If, as the great biographer and essayist James Boswell has defined the essence of humanity as the thing that separates us from animals is the fact that we cook, then this is the first human. He said, beasts have memory, judgment, faculties, and passions of the mind, but no beast is a cook. Think of that. Next time you come across some roasted seeds, right? Archaic forms of Homo sapiens appeared about 500,000 years ago. For example, Neanderthals lived from about 320 to 30,000 years ago, and they're very closely related to us. So close we could probably reproduce uh, offspring with them. Their brains were a little bigger than ours. They were stout but short, about five foot six, solid built, adapted to living in colder climates of the last major ice age. And they used a wide variety of tools and weapons. And they were, in fact, hunters of big game. Uh, there are sites in Spain that have remains of butchered elephants. But for the most part, most importantly for our topic, Neanderthals cooked their food. From about 250,000 years ago, there is undeniable evidence of widespread cooking of food. That dates to about 125,000 years ago. And finally, Homo sapiens sapiens, that's us. We only appeared 120,000 years ago. And in fact, we lived at the same time as the Neanderthals. About 40,000 years ago, what's known as Cro-Magnon Man was making tools for sewing clothes, sculpting, decorating beads, making ivory carvings, clay figures, instruments, and the cave paintings. And it's only here that we have evidence of really sophisticated hunting strategies, like the remains of 100,000 horses found at the bottom of a cliff in Soulutre in France. That means repeated game drives. They also took on dangerous animals now, like wild boar and mammoth, and there's evidence of that in the Czech Republic. And when we get to 30,000 BC, or the Paleolithic, the Old Stone Age, we're the only hominid left. Presumably, our advanced organizational skills, and maybe our diet too, gave us a distinct advantage over the Neanderthals. And again, it may have been this sophisticated cooking, may have been socializing. I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. But first, what exactly is this gathering and hunting life like. Fully 90% of all humans who have ever lived were gatherers and hunters. And so not only is agriculture and domestication really, really recent, but proportionally smaller given the dramatic population growth in historic times. 
Although gatherer hunters were more closely tied to the larger ecosystem along with other animals, it would be wrong to assume that they lived in some kind of primeval harmony with nature. No, they destroyed fields through burning, <laughs> you know, and in fact, that makes some seeds edible and it stimulates renewed growth. Uh, they hunted animals to extinction. They caused pollution. But obviously, given the low population density, they can't do that much damage. And about a million years ago, Homo habilis and erectus, there were maybe half a million hominids in existence. That's maybe the population of Sacramento. By 30,000, there were maybe 3 million. Now, why? Population is nomadic at this time, um, or picks up and moves seasonally to follow herds or find new plant resources. They have no permanent dwellings. Now, what effect does that have on the population? One adult can maybe carry two babies at most, but, but there's also a very high infant mortality rate because of harsh living conditions. But despite the smaller populations, hunters and gatherers were on the whole better nourished, had fewer diseases, and probably a lot more spare time than their agricultural and pastoral descendants. Why? It's a higher proportion of meat in the diet, it's greater caloric intake, it's a much greater diversity of foods eaten, and that means actually a more balanced diet. Uh, because they lived in bands of 100 people or less, no diseases of crowding, there's less contagion, there's less contamination of food in the water supply by garbage and feces, because they're always moving on, right? Less frequency of intestinal parasites like schistosomiasis or hookworm, um, nor did they get diseases from their domesticated animals. Things like flu, tuberculosis, pox, um, or even from rats that live with humans in permanent dwellings. So regarding the issue of free time, a hunting and gathering economy provides 10,000 to 15,000 calories per one hour's labor. A subsistence farmer growing mostly grain gets between 3,000 and 5,000 calories. So you have to work much harder at farming and you have to eat a lot more vegetables to be properly nourished. So the technology to capture or kill an animal requires a high level of sophistication to chip in an arrow or a spearhead, to fashion a bow or a dart, to go in a blowgun. And then think of all these nets and traps and the weirs and hooks for fishing, perhaps even boats. Now making these things are skills passed down from generation to generation and presumably gives some peoples an evolutionary advantage over others. And again, this may be why we replace those Neanderthals. Sophisticated toolmakers survive and they pass on their genes at a greater rate. It is generally believed that there was a gender-specific division of labor among these people, uh, as there often is among nomadic hunter-gatherers today, some, the men went out to hunt while the women did the gathering. And the usual explanation is, well, child rearing limits your mobility. And hunting, on the other hand, replicates skills used in war. Now, don't get the idea that gathering was somehow less important, therefore. Absolutely not. It probably accounts for the bulk of the caloric intake. If you think of the acorns and the roots and nuts and berries and green plants and snails and mushrooms and grubs, and these are certainly the foods that they depended on from day to day. Uh, and they also take a lot more tedious labor, uh, but they can be done in a group while raising children um, that are, of course, much slower to mature um, than the young of most other animals. 
But if cooking was essential to our becoming human and was the first major food revolution, what kinds of effects would it have on society? Imagine a communal gathering around a fire, a need to cooperate further with larger groups of people. That leads to the development of rituals. They serve to prescribe behavior so you don't have to have people fighting within the tribe. Maybe there's a tribal leader with informal laws, not to kill or eat your neighbors, but join in together um, to uh, fend off common aggressors. In other words, a more complex social organization results from regular cooking with fire. And there would have been organized units before, certainly, but they just become more cohesive with a desire to stay around the common campfire. Maybe telling stories, dancing, making music. And the effect is that it makes many foods more digestible. Meats, starches, wild grasses. It also makes other foods edible, uh, period. In other words, things like manioc that you have to grate and soak and cook, it removes the poisonous prussic acid. And compared to other primates, humans can therefore um, exploit a wider range of foods, digest them more easily, and they have more energy left for other brain work instead of digestion, which makes them, in the end, much better at gathering and hunting. Did you know that we can actually eat acorns? And the processing of acorns is one of those things our prehistoric ancestors figured out. And Native Americans did it uh, to this, well, they do it to this day. Well, let me walk you through the steps of this process. Okay, and here is how you would process the acorns yourself if you wanted to. First, find some acorns like this. These are white oak. They're rather large and long, and you can tell them because of the shape of the leaves. They're not very strongly serrated. But what you do is basically just crack, save these for about a year uh, until they're dry, or heat them in an oven to dry them. And then you wanna just crack them open like this, and you'll see that inside there is an acorn, right, like that. Um, actually two, there should be two there. and. Then you just pound them up, and they're actually pretty easy to pound, into a flour. Okay, and you can see that. And at this point, um, normally what you'd do with them is you'd leach them. So you'd pour water over them, tie them in a sack and throw them in a river, or you can actually put them in a colander and let water flow over them. And eventually the bitterness of the tannins will come out. And then you wanna take that and put it into a basket um, and add water to that, add hot rocks to it. This is the traditional way the Miwok would have made it, and stir it around, remove the rocks with a special stick, and you have a kind of porridge. But it actually, this flour, these are actually sweet right off the tree, uh, works very nicely with, um, in pancakes, in crepes, and anything like that. And it's, it's a shame, in fact, that acorns aren't eaten more regularly in modern society because they're actually very nutritious. They grow very easily, you know, on oak trees and every park has them, really. Um, it's just that they're very hard to process and they can't be really grown commercially because every acorn comes out a little different. Every tree is a different flavor. So consistency is very hard to find. Um, but I would encourage you, if you have acorns around, to just give it a shot. All you need is a mortar. If you're really lazy, you can use your, your blender or food processor. But otherwise, acorn flour is really a delightful and very, very prehistoric uh, ingredient. Cooking also kills pathogens in food. Trichinae worm in pork, salmonella, and those who cooked probably survived at a greater rate than those who didn't. And that's a, a real evolutionary advantage. In fact, even before pottery and metallurgy, a core repertoire of cooking methods had already come into use. Let me describe these. They're simple. 
First, there's roasting, right? You take a stick, you put a piece of meat on it, just like you would a hot dog, or you wrap the food in leaves and you place it on the embers, you know, and think about, again, what happens when people gather around that campfire. Um, they start telling stories and things. The second way is a hot stone. You can put it right on top of a fire, uh, very much like a griddle. Um, and in fact, tortillas are basically cooked that way. Um, you can also line a pit with stones, uh, sort of like a, um, an umu or a clam bake, and then you basically put the food on top, you cover the whole things with leaves, cover that with earth, and the food actually bakes inside there and takes very minimal um, technology. Um, there's also the way of heating water in a basket by adding hot stones, the way I described with the acorns. Um, and perhaps, you know, even primitive pottery would have been made by covering uh, a reed basket with mud and then firing it um, in situ for cooking. Another very interesting thing is um, cooking with a skin stretched over a fire. I know this sounds really unlikely, like it, that it wouldn't work, but in fact, there's an experiment you can do with a paper bag in which you um, put the paper bag, fill it with water and put it over a flame and it will actually boil if the bag is sort of doesn't have any seams where the water will leak through. Um, there are also stone-lined pits that are below the water table and you fill that with, with water and put hot rocks in. Um, or sometimes you could smear clay around it and fire it and then add the hot rocks. And then, of course, the simplest way of cooking in a vessel is to take an entrail itself and stuff it with other ingredients. Um, and it's sort of like roasting, but what you do is you break open the, the uh, stomach casing or a sausage or haggis or something like that, and then you, um, you eat the interior. Um, and I've heard also in some places of a stomach being cooked with its own contents. So in other words, the grass or whatever was eaten, um, you'll find that in Tang Dynasty China, among Eskimos as well. And then there's also the proper barbecue, right? Cooking over hot coals in a pit with food that's arranged on a wooden rack. And we'll see Caribs and other Native Americans give us that original form of barbecue. But let's, lastly, let's talk about what was eaten. Uh, that depends entirely on the region, but there are some generalizations that can be made, and I'll mention them because they stand in very sharp contrast to what happens after 10,000 BC. The first major distinction is those between those living near water and those inland and the open grasslands where there are animals and herds. The inland people generally have to move farther, more frequently than the coastal people, which itself fosters the expansion of our species, which is why the dispersal of Native American Plains Indians was much greater than coastal Californians, who didn't really need to move far to find food, you know, came to them from the sea. Another generalization is that colder Arctic and more northern regions tend to have a narrower diet like Inuit on seals and fish, which is dependent on migratory patterns and they have to preserve it as much as they can. Whereas in tropical regions, the diet is more varied and there's a greater mix of vegetables, fruits, and meats. Changes in diet are also revealed in changes in human remains. For example, examination of dentition tells you what people chomped on all their lives and Unfortunately, human remains are not always so straightforward or easy to interpret. And in fact, for years, anthropologists thought Peking man skulls, they all had an interior broken brain cavity and they figured, oh, these people must be cannibals. But in fact, it's probably the thinnest part that wore out because of the um, composition of the soil where they were found. In any case, bigger jaws holding bigger muscles suggest rough and more raw food. Smaller jaws, like more recent humans, suggest softer and cooked food. Uh, there are also more cavities when we get to agricultural diets and because of the starches and sugars. 
Um, and oddly, hunters and gatherers have more worn front teeth and canines, but the agriculturalists wear their molars down more quickly. It makes sense. But the key point is that for more than 100,000 years, virtually everything humans ate was wild. The animal species they ate were leaner, the roots and vegetables stronger tasting, and with all the fiber and rush, roughage intact, and they also, of course, ate a lot of nuts and berries, which people today claim are very good for your health. So in the next lecture, we will consider why, even though we were so successful as a species, did humans abandon this way of life after about 10,000 years ago? Thanks for listening to episode one of Food, a cultural culinary history. Just a reminder, if you're enjoying this podcast and want more of the same, you can find hundreds of audio courses on all sorts of topics, all taught by brilliant professors like Ken Albala, at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash podcasts, featuring in-depth courses on subjects ranging from history, science, fitness, philosophy, mathematics, literature, travel, cooking, photography, you name it. At The Great Courses Plus, you can learn everything about anything.